Well, we begin the book of Acts this morning, and uh, to uh, lead us through the scripture, um, I'm going to ask Lauren to come and to read verses 1 through 5 of Acts chapter 1. So have your Bibles ready. Let's stand together. Acts 1, 1 through 5, and then we'll jump into the actual preaching of the word. Acts 1, 1 through 5. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach, until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands to the Holy Spirit, to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during forty days, and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Lord, help us today as we embark on a new journey, Lord, a journey that you have, in your providence, um, brought us to. And you, Lord, you want us to, uh, to be strengthened and guided and challenged, Lord, from this wonderful book. But Lord, give us eyes to see your truth for what it is. Help us to be discerning. Lord, help us to be teachable. And Lord, would you give me, Lord, just the the wisdom to be able to proclaim your truth, Lord, as you desire for it to be proclaimed so that your people can, can grow and be strengthened. We as a church can not only know what we're called to, but also have examples of what that looks like uh, so that when we are in situations where we can be a part of the furtherance of your gospel, Lord, that we can uh, be mindful, Lord, of, of what it is that you can do through us. So, Lord, what we know not, would you teach us? What we have not, Lord, would you give us? And, Lord, what we are not, would you make us now? We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Now, if you get your Bibles and you look at Acts chapter 1, I want you to notice um, something there. I want you to notice the title, the Acts of the Apostles. Now, you've probably heard the saying before that you cannot judge a book by its cover. And the idea there is don't assume that the cover is an accurate reflection of what is contained in the book. In fact, you can get some really nice books that have nice covers that, that promise so many good things and, and purchase it and take it home and open it up, start reading it and find out that what was promised on the cover is not realized in its contents, right? They fooled you by packaging the book in a certain way. On the other hand, you can grab a book from the shelf that's just a a hardbound, kind of a blue cover book. It's plain, there's nothing on it. And you think, oh man, this is not going to be any good. But you open up and you start reading it and you find out that there's this book is full of substance and, and richness and depth. When we come to the beginning here of the book of Acts, we're given this title, the Acts of the Apostles. But friends... This was not original to this document. It is not inspired. This is the church's effort to summarize and give an understanding of what this book is about. 
So the title, The Acts of the Apostles, certainly gives a summary. It certainly gives a, a picture of, of what the, the book is about, but it is somewhat misleading because it's not really the Acts of the Apostles because there's really only two main apostles that are given much attention, right? You've got Peter, who would be chapters 1 through 10, and you've got Paul, chapters 13 through 27. There may be a couple others in there, but it's not like the Acts of all the Apostles. It's the acts of really primarily two apostles. Yeah, it's still accurate in the sense that, yeah, okay, these are wonderful acts that God did through these men that, um, that had been chosen for these ministries. Now, to that end, some want to change the title of the book to say the acts of the Holy Spirit. This is especially true with the rise of Pentecostalism or the apostolic or charismatic movements where the ministry of the Holy Spirit is really given a distorted focus and priority. And to be fair and balanced, the the book of Acts does contain lots of activity that is empowered by the Holy Spirit. So let's not deny the fact that the Spirit is there, but let's be careful that we present the book of Acts with a, a balanced understanding. Because if all we do is see the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts, we're going to miss uh, maybe what the whole book of Acts is about. And it's going to eclipse us from seeing what God wants us to see. Now, the book of Acts does show us the Holy Spirit, who's always been present, even in the Old Testament, but is unleashed in a new and unique way in great power to that early church. And so we will see that. We will recognize that. But is it really the acts of the Holy Spirit. And then there are others who want to say, well, this is all about the acts of the early church. And you cannot read the book of Acts without realizing the magnitude of God's work in taking the gospel to Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the uh, uttermost parts of the earth, and churches are planted in all these different places. Certainly, it contains this wonderful uh, documenting of these churches being planted, but is is that really a sufficient title? Now, I'm not going to argue necessarily about the title, but with all these titles, we may be guilty of missing the heart of what is going on in the book of Acts. And so this morning, as we look at these first five verses... I want to suggest to you that the five opening verses reveal to us something surprising, that in fact, it is Jesus that is at the heart of the book of Acts. And that Luke specifically states that and demonstrates that in these verses. Now you see, if we simply think of the Holy Spirit, we can miss Jesus. If we just think of the church, we can miss Jesus. If we think of the apostles, we can miss Jesus. So Jesus is at the heart of the book of Acts. And although that we see the Holy Spirit, and we see the ministry of the apostles, that we see the growth of the church, that Jesus Christ is really at the center of it all. Now you might be saying, Pastor Rod, you're you're trying to put a square peg into a round hole, that somehow you're forcing Jesus into the center of this book. And I want to encourage you to look for yourself as we go through here and to see if what I'm saying is true or not. And what you might find here, that these first five verses are given to us so that we might see how the ministry of Christ 
doesn't end with the Gospels, but it continues into the book of Acts. And that Jesus ultimately is the one who is driving these events. And friends, this nuance, or this, might want to say, clarity, helps us then in our interpretation and our approach to the book of Acts. Because we see that it's Jesus then who is at the heart, who's driving it. So to that end, this morning, I want to consider our text under three headings. Context, where we'll look briefly at the author, the recipient, the date, and the genre of Acts. I know stuff that you'll probably go over, but no, don't do that because this is really important. Secondly, contribution. In what way does Acts contribute then to the the body of Scripture that we have? Why is it important? And third, continuation, where we'll we'll actually dive into verses 1 through 5 and see that Jesus is the one who is driving uh, the book of Acts. So let's jump in now at context. Why is context important? Context is important for a number of reasons because it gives us an understanding of who was writing, what was written, why it was written, to whom it was written, and when. These are all very, very important uh, points of, of data that help us then to be able to frame an understanding of what is happening with this book. These pieces of the puzzle help us then to, to, to lay out that place setting to understand maybe a passage of scripture that we're looking at. All right, so that we can have a better understanding of what is going on and a better, again, a better just awareness of what God is wanting to, to show us as individuals and as, an, as a church. Let me give you an example of what I'm talking about as far as context is concerned. Just imagine you, you, you go into someone's house and you go to a, to the, to the counter in the kitchen, you see a piece of paper, and on that piece of paper, this is what is, what is listed. Eggs, milk, flour, sugar, baking powder, brown sugar. Now, what does it mean? Could be a recipe. Could be a shopping list. Could be an inventory of what we, you know, what's there in the cupboard. So it could be a number of different things. But context is going to help us understand what it's actually about. You're going to have to look around and see what's actually taking place. So if you take the paper and you see at the top of the paper the words Safeway, you're probably logically going to conclude this isn't a recipe. You're probably going to conclude this is probably a shopping list. Why? Because there is something in the context of the words that is written that helps you understand, aha, this is likely what's going on, right? So this is part of the idea of context. And we always talk about context. I like to talk about being Columbo. You remember Columbo, right? He would, all, he would walk into a room, and as he walks in the room, he, it's just input. He's, he's looking for all the data that's there. He's looking for all the things. He's gathering that information. Why? Because he wants to understand what was happening in the room. What's missing? What should be there? What's, 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 what's been moved? And it's just like that when it comes to context. We come to a passage and we want to we wanna look and see what's there because it will help us then understand the context of what's going on. So with that in mind, there are four pieces of information. There's, there's, there's more that we could look at, but I'm going to limit right now to four pieces of information that will help us to understand what's going on in this book. Number one, the author, the author. Now, of course, we know the author is Luke, right? Luke, the one who wrote the Gospel of Luke, 
In fact, in Colossians 4, um, Paul describes Luke as the beloved physician. Right? He is one then who is a doctor. He, he's obviously skilled in that way. He wrote the Gospel of Luke and was an occasional uh, traveler with Paul. We get that from Acts 16 because in there, the expression, we did this, we went here, we did this. Right? He was there with Paul on his journey. Then also, if you look outside of uh, the Gospel of Acts to 2 Timothy chapter 4, in particular verse 11, we read Paul from prison as saying, only Luke is with me. So, so Paul and Luke had this good relationship, and so Luke has the ability then to be able to know what has been taking place simply by, by virtue of his relationship with, with Paul. Also, it would appear that Luke was a, a learned and cosmopolitan man. He was well-connected, well-versed in the politics of the day. He had a good Hellenistic education and had a solid grasp of Judaism to be able to put these things together and to present them in such a way that it would be understandable for the reader. Ultimately, we know he was a Christian convert, right? He was, he was someone who was a follower of Christ, disciple of Christ. So we have the author, that's Luke. Then there's the recipient, Theophilus. Now, some scholars want to say that Theophilus is a generic name because Theophilus means lover of God, as if Luke was writing the book of Acts just to the general Christian out there. But in Luke's gospel, he's writing to a specific man by the name of Theophilus. And it's Luke again writing this. It just seems that everything that's been written here is written to an individual. But there is a sense then that this is written, although it's written to an individual, it's also written to every believer who can identify with Theophilus. In fact, we find in Luke's gospel, the beginning, Luke chapter 1, verse 3, Luke identifies him as most excellent Theophilus. So we come to the conclusion that he was likely some kind of an official, a Roman official. So he was Hellenistic. He wasn't a Jew, right? He was a Gentile. But he ultimately was a Christian. Now, he may be a young Christian, newborn Christian. And he might be struggling with the, the story that he's heard about this Christ and wondering whether or not this is true. And Luke is writing not only the gospel, but he's also writing the book of Acts to help give him certainty to, to know that what is being written and what he's been told isn't a fanciful story, but it is actual history. In fact, look at Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Thankfully, Luke has given us some of this, this stuff, this information, this data at the beginning of his gospel, as well as the beginning of the book of Acts. He says, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. So there's eyewitnesses. There are those who are actually ministering the word, who have communicated what they've seen, right? It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. So Luke is writing in Luke's gospel, an orderly account with eyewitness verification for Theophilus so that he would be certain about the things that he has heard. And, that, and that there's no question that 
that would continue in this book of Acts, that Luke is doing the same thing, using the same methodologies, the same carefulness that he did in his gospel. Third, the date. Some want to want to put this, this uh, book of Acts as a late date, like after A.D. 70, maybe 80, 90, 80 or 90. But the internal evidence, as well as the silence of what is contained in the book of Acts, would actually lead us to a much earlier dating. You say, I have no idea why that would be important. Let me tell you why that's important. Because if it's earlier, then there's some things that Luke is not identified. So the silence here is the fact there's no discussion at all about the destruction of Jerusalem, which took place in AD 70. And also the the years leading up to it, there were things that were happening there that would have an effect on the church. That that certainly would be a, a significant event for any Jew that was sent out uh, or, or, was, or was part of, the, of the, uh, the persecution that was going on there. Secondly, there's no mention about the death of Paul, which was likely somewhere around um, AD 62. And certainly Paul, being a main character in the book of Acts, if he died, and if he had died at that point in time, would be included in the story, you would think, right? So I think it's pretty comfortable to say that Luke is writing to Theophilus before both Paul's death and the description or the, the destruction of Jerusalem. Fourth, this idea of genre. What kind of literature is this? One of the questions we need to answer, especially in this kind of postmodern world, is to ask this question Is Acts real? Um, is it fable? Is it myth? Are the events that are recorded in the book of Acts, simply fanciful records of the church. You know, in today's world, this is how, this is how it goes. Well, we all know that the winners are the actual ones who write history according to their own purposes. Yet much of what we read in Luke's gospel and Acts is corroborated by the Jewish historians of the day, in particular, someone like Josephus. In fact, people have gone through to find out whether the facts that are presented about leaders, about policies, about locations and, and cities, whether those things are actual in Luke's writing. And they've all been found to be true. And friends, that's important because there's always an attack on the Word of God, right? People who are not believers will say, well, you can't believe that, true. It's just written by a bunch of guys. It's all just kind of made up in fables and stuff. And it's like, Luke is making a point here to say, look, what I have given you is real. It is true. It is actual history. So there's some things that we can say here. First of all, we can say, first of all, that Acts is history. We will put this book in the genre of historical narrative. It gives us an accurate account of the events following the ascension of Jesus Christ and the growth, then, of the church in Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, and eventually to uh, the expanse of the Mediterranean. Now, Luke was a careful historian who got his facts right. He researched well, probably using written sources as well as interviewing eyewitnesses. And to that end, the fact that he is present at times adds color to what is taking place. And as I mentioned, the, the data, the, in, the facts that Luke present, presents have been verified as facts that are true and that are right. 
Now, something interesting to, to note here. The book of Acts covers about 33 years of activity and events. And if you take Luke's gospel and the book of Acts, you have about one quarter of the New Testament. So this is a pretty huge contribution, isn't it? Not only is Acts history, but get this also. Acts is also theology. It shows us primarily through the gospel preaching of the apostles that what God is doing in establishing his church is an outgrowth and a fulfillment of what he promised in the Old Testament. Now remember, when Paul goes into a synagogue and he preaches, he's not coming in with his own new book. What is he doing? He's going into the synagogue and he's opening up the scriptures, which would be the Old Testament, and he's preaching Christ from the Old Testament. So in that sense, Acts is theology. It's showing us by the preaching how this gospel that is taking root is directly an outgrowth, an outflow of what was promised in the Old Testament. That's important. Having said that, it is a primitive theology that will be refined and developed by the apostles in the epistles and the letters. Narrative is not the best genre for teaching solid theology. You get... You get some good theology, but you see what happens is the apostles, Paul and Peter and others, would then, during these events, be writing letters. And in those letters, they would be articulating and formulating and establishing a solid, a deeper theology than we'll find in the book of Acts. So it's primitive, and it will be refined then by the epistles. Now remember the, remember the, the five-fold kind of... Uh, statement that we've, we've given a number of times about Christ being the center of the word of God. In the Old Testament, Christ is what? Remember this? Predicted. In the Gospels, Christ is what? Revealed. In the book of Acts, Christ is preached. In the epistles, Christ is explained. And in the book of Revelation, He comes back, right? So the the point here is that Christ is at the heart of it, and he's at the heart of the book of Acts in one significant way, that he is the subject, he is the essence of the preaching connecting the Old Testament to the New Testament. But it's explained in greater detail through the epistles. It's important for us to understand. Third, Acts is mostly then descriptive and not prescriptive. So one of the things we've got to be careful with when it comes to descriptive and prescriptive is saying more than the text is actually saying. Now what you say, what's descriptive, what's prescriptive? Descriptive simply means this, describing in great detail what is going on, what happened, telling the story. Prescriptive is basically when you're saying, well, here is how you should do something. So, for example, the Apostle Paul, he goes into this great big um, gathering, uh, the Areopagus, and he quotes one of the poets of the people of the day. And I could say, well, when you're talking to others, you have to quote someone 
that's culturally appropriate for today. No, it's not saying that you have to do that. That's actually a good tool to do that. That's what he did. But it's not saying prescriptive, this is the methodology you have to use. Prescriptive is going to come up in the epistles. When the apostles are going to say, now look, if this is true, then you need to do this, you need to do this, you need to do this, you need to do this. So we need to make a distinction between descriptive and prescriptive. But there are things that we can learn from the descriptive, right? But they're not prescriptive. So it's just really important for, to make, for us to make that, that difference. Let me give you an example. When I moved to California in 2004, as I was coming into this, this new church, um, I often heard people talk about the importance of being a healthy church, and a healthy church would be a church that looked like the church in Acts chapter 2 and chapter 3 that was just growing and growing and growing, and that's the kind of church that we should be. Well, the reality is that the things that are in Acts chapter 2 and chapter 3 are not prescriptive, they're descriptive. This is what happened to that particular church. And you don't just take the, the things that happen and say, here's the model then that should happen in every church, that every healthy church is just going to grow just boom by tons of people. No, that's what happened in the history of the church. But that doesn't necessarily mean that that's what has to happen at our church to make it at least appear successful. And so there was a misunderstanding between the descriptive and the prescriptive. All right? So there we have just kind of a, a background context understanding of what um, we need to think about as we're, as we're thinking through this book of Acts. Secondly, let's consider now this idea of contribution. How does the book of Acts contribute to the rest of Scripture, in particular the New Testament? But I'd like to ask that same question in the negative. What would it be like if the book of Acts had never been written? How would it affect our understanding of the gospel, of the church, and, and um, the ministry that we have to be witnesses? So here's a short list. I just want you to think about this. This is really important. When it comes to preaching, we would not have the examples of how the Holy Spirit empowered the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We would just know that preaching was something that we should do, but we wouldn't have that example before us. We would not be able to listen to the preaching of Peter and Stephen and Philip and Paul that, that show how the gospel is rooted in the Old Testament. When it comes to the church, we would not see how the church was established or how it grew or how it continued to expand in those early years. When it comes to the epistles, we would have great difficulty in understanding the vast majority of the content of the letters and how, how they were written by the apostles. Things about, we wouldn't have an understanding of the context of those letters because we wouldn't have a history to be able to put the context of those letters into. So again, we wouldn't have an understanding of how those churches began and who started them and what happened there. When it comes to people, we would not be introduced to people like Aquila and Priscilla and Barnabas and others who were faithful brothers and sisters in Christ. We would not be aware of the, the faithfulness of men like Philip and Stephen. And we would have difficulty relating to Paul. So since we would have nothing really of, a, of an understanding of his persecution except for what he said happened to him, kind of reflecting in one of his epistles. We wouldn't see it documented in story. As it relates to the Gentiles, we would be blind as to the way in which God took his gospel into the Gentile territory through the apostles and established his churches in those areas. 
when it comes to persecution and suffering. We would not have an example of suffering and persecution that Jesus said would happen. Instead, it would all be theoretical. So just imagine if, if Acts wasn't there, there would be this huge gap in our understanding. So I want to say this, that Acts is a gift by God to us to help us understand um, the, the, the effectiveness and the power and the means by which he has grown his church through his gospel. Now, certainly more could be said, but what we need to understand is that without the book of Acts, we would all be at a great disadvantage. Now, let's think about this book of Acts in a positive sense. Here's a short list, because there's, there's, there's many things we could talk about, but here's a short list. You might say this, this is a long list, Pastor, but it's not. Here's some things we're going to encounter. The priority of evangelism. What does it look like? What does it not look like? The power of the Holy Spirit. What does it mean? What does it look like? How does it work through us? The community life within the body of Christ. How do they care for one another? How do they serve one another? I mean, I I always laugh at that story of Peter getting out of jail and going and knocking on the door while the church is having a prayer meeting. And it's like, they don't even want to bother at the door. Who's at the door? We're praying here. We're busy doing stuff. I mean, it's just, you see these pictures, but here's the church praying. It's wonderful, right? Which leads us then into the next one, the ministry of prayer. It's power. It's placed in the life of a believer. The breaking of long-established barriers in human relationships. I mean, Ed began our service talking about how, how in, the, in the book of Acts we see that the gospel then not, not just focusing on the Jews, but the gospel bringing everyone else in together as one man. Not only that, this wonderful uh, picture of the relationship between men and women and how the gospel brought uh, this, this, this wonderful um, respect and understanding between men and women, and then masters and slaves. How they may be masters and slaves outside the context of church, but in the context of church, they're one in Christ. The suffering of Christians, the sovereignty of God in all things, the resistance and opposition to the gospel. Now, turning our attention back to Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, we see that these few verses serve us, first of all, as an introduction for Theophilus and for the readers, that would be us, to be ready for the story that Luke is about to share. Okay, He's preparing us. He's laying some things down for us. Secondly, it's a bridge. It's a bridge, and it links Luke's gospel to what Luke will reveal in Acts. It shows that the book of Acts is actually a sequel, right? You notice there in verse 1, the first book. This is the second book. If there's a first book, this is the second book. There's a bridge going on here. He's connecting it then for Theophilus. And third, and hear this, it's a Trinitarian introduction. Did you notice that right at the outset, Luke wants us to beware about the triune God? Just in these first five verses. We see here the ministry of Jesus laid out for us. We'll get into that in, the, in a little bit. The, the promise of the Father, which ultimately is the power of the Holy Spirit. And here we have the Godhead all working together in the introduction. But friends, this is important. Why? Because in today's context, the church's theology of the Holy Spirit is often so distorted. 
What we see here is that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are all working together as the Godhead to bring about the growth and the spread of the gospel. So in sum, Acts is a sociological, historical, and theological work explaining the roots of this new church community as a sequel to Luke's story. Now, having considered now the context and the contribution, let's think about the connection. This is where we're going to jump now into our text, and all that's really been kind of preparation for us. Some of you may remember a guy by the name of Paul Harvey. How many of you guys remember that? Yeah, us old folk, right? Um, Paul Harvey was on the radio almost every day, and he'd usually have like a, like a four or five minute kind of a spot where he would tell some kind of a story, some, ad, some, some event, some, some person's life, blah, blah, blah. And he would always you know, end up the story by saying a number of words. Remember what they were? Now you know the rest of the story. And there's a, there's a sense that something similar is happening here at the beginning of Acts. Luke is saying to Theophilus, there is still more to the story of Jesus. But to understand the rest of the story, we need to look back to the beginning of Luke's gospel again. So let's return to those first few words to Theophilus in Luke chapter 1, 1 through 4, and see how those first five verses those first five verses of the book of Acts lay the foundation for the rest of the story. Inasmuch, he says, as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time, some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Now, let's just think through the flow of Theophilus and where he's at and what's going on with him. What we notice at the end at verse 4, Theophilus has been taught. He's been instructed by someone about Christ and about his gospel. You with me there? Luke then is saying, now I'm writing this account for you with eyewitness testimony and all that so that you can have certainty about what you've been taught. So what you've been taught, now Luke's gospel, and then he gets to the book of Acts where now Luke seeks to continue the story through the book of Acts. So you see the flow that's going on here. Luke has an agenda. He's trying to make sure that Theophilus understands what is actually taking place. And so these two books are working together then to give him that certainty. And so I'd like for us to consider three foundational truths now from verses 1 through 5 that will drive and frame what Luke is about to say in the book of Acts what Jesus accomplished, what Jesus promised, and what Jesus continues. First of all, what Jesus accomplished. We go back to our our main text here, Acts chapter 1. And notice that we're told here, um, Luke captures here and summarizes what he wrote for Theophilus in his first book. Um, I don't know if they do it that much anymore. I've seen it a few times. But usually you know, when, you, when, you, when you were watching a, 
a TV show that is, that's like in series, usually like the first minute or so are these kind of like flashes of scenes and stuff to, to, to kind of recap what's already taken place so that you have context for what you're actually watching. Otherwise, you know, if a person says, you know, come, it's going to start, it's going to start, I'll be there in just a minute. And so they miss the recap and they come and they're sitting in front, they're like, I don't understand how this fits together. Well, it's because you didn't, you didn't look at the recap. And so Luke is saying, let me give you this recap. Let me help you understand what is going on here. So he highlights uh, five things from his first book. First of all, his ministry, Christ's ministry, all he began to do and teach. In other words, that's talking about how Jesus went into towns and villages, healing people of their diseases, casting out demons and so on. And through his teaching ministry, confronting the religious leaders of the day, proclaiming his, the truth about the kingdom, whether it be from a mountain, from the side of a hill overlooking the lake, or even with the disciples one-on-one. Not only his ministry, then his discipleship. It says here he had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen. He's summarizing this, this relationship that Christ had with these chosen men that he was training as a master-disciple relationship. It was hands-on training, but there was also time of, of personal interaction with them that we have recorded in Luke's gospel, where, where Christ is explaining the kingdom that he was going to be ushering in. Then we're told here about his suffering. It says, after his suffering, that's in verse 3. This is Christ's passion, his betrayal, his arrest, his trial, his scourging, his crucifixion, his burial. It's one word that, encapsula- that captures all of those things taking place, right? We call that his passion. His resurrection. Notice what it says here. Also, he presented himself alive to them by many proofs. So he appeared to many during the 40 day. Uh, 40 days after his resurrection, he walked through walls, he touched them, he ate with them. There's at least 10 different appearances of Jesus after the resurrection. The point here is that this wasn't happening in secret. Jesus was there in public. He was with his disciples after his resurrection. And he taught his followers about the kingdom of God. His resurrection was the proof that he was the true king And that by believing in him, you could enter the kingdom. So friends, Luke is giving here, in a sense, a recap of what he taught in in his first gospel. And he finishes up with this fifth one, the ascension, until the day when he was taken up. And here are the point. This is where he's saying, "This, this is where I left off my gospel. Luke 24, verses 50 and 51 say this, And he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. So Luke has taken Theophilus back to the first book, that would be Luke's gospel, and reminding Theophilus that Jesus is at the heart of his gospel account. And what Luke is about to say to Theophilus is rooted then in what he has already revealed in his first book. In other words, without an understanding of God's redemptive plan in the gospel, you will not truly understand or comprehend what Luke is about to say in the book of Acts. So his birth, his ministry, his teaching, his training, his suffering, his death, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension, 
all are necessary for us to comprehend what is going to be happening next. Luke wants to make sure that Theophilus knows that what he is about to read is a sequel. And that there's more about this redemptive plan that is yet to take place. So that's what Jesus accomplished. Summarize the gospel in just three verses. <laughs> that's what he's doing here. All right? And again, friends, this is, this is foundational. For Theophilus to understand, to comprehend, he's got to have a grasp of that. And friends, for us to understand the book of Acts, we don't just jump into the book of Acts. We have to have a grasp of the life and ministry of Christ. Now, we've gone through a number of different gospels as a church, so I'm, I'm not concerned about that. But the point here is it's, it's not just a, a freestanding book that is disconnected from everything else. Secondly, not only what Jesus accomplished, but I want you to notice next what Jesus promised. Verse 4, and while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem. He's reflecting back now what Jesus said. But to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So in in verse 4, Luke tells us that Jesus, before he ascended, ordered the disciples to do two things, to not depart from Jerusalem and to wait for the promise of the Father. How many of you like to wait? How many of you like to stay put? So Jesus said, stay, wait. There's a promise coming. So to help us understand that, let's go back to Luke chapter 24. Go back to Luke chapter 24. And we're going we're gonna to pick it up at verse 44 of Luke 24. And this is the last chapter, and so we're seeing now some connection And I want you to see what it is that Jesus ultimately said. Verse 44, and then he said to them, this is the disciples. Jesus is now interacting with the disciples. These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And said to them, thus it is written that Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to the, to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things and behold, I'm sending the promise of my father upon you, but stay in the city until you're clothed with power from on high. I'm I'm taking you back there because Luke is saying this and recording this in his gospel. And he's referring back to this now as he's writing the book of Acts. You see the connection there. This is where his gospel left off. Here's where Acts jumps in. So Jesus is saying in this passage to his disciples, everything about me and my gospel is rooted in the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures, the law, the prophets, and the Psalms. Those summarize Those encapsulate the whole of the Old Testament. Everything you've seen, my suffering, my death, my resurrection, they're all written, they're foretold in those scriptures. And the gospel that I have accomplished will be proclaimed to all the nations beginning in Jerusalem. That's what he says here. And now Luke is picking up on this. He says, now remember what I said? Remember what Jesus said? 
this is what this book is going to be about. In other words, Jesus is saying, this is back in Luke 24, there will still be preaching, there will still be people coming to faith, my gospel will continue to go forward, and I will go to the nations beginning in Jerusalem. Now, friends, that's big news. But that's not all. Something else is going to happen that will be the means by which the gospel will go forward to the nations. Something else is part of the redemptive plan of the Godhead, and it's the promise of the Father. So maybe if we want to put it this way, you have the, you have, you know, here's the ministry of Jesus, you have the death, burial, uh, sorry, death, the crucifixion, right? Death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ, his ascension, and then the promise of the Father. We don't necessarily connect that as all part of uh, the events that are part of the, the redemptive plan of which Jesus is involved. Now go back and read verse 49 of Luke chapter 24, and just read it very, very carefully. Again, this is Jesus speaking. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. Who's sending the promise? Jesus is sending the promise. Now, you might be saying, why, Pastor, why are you being so particular here? Because if we get this wrong, then we put the emphasis in the wrong person. And we begin to misunderstand and misinterpret what is happening in the book of Acts because we're no longer thinking about Jesus. So he says, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. So whatever the promise of the Father is, because they're not sure exactly what it is yet, Jesus is saying that it is he that is sending it upon his disciples. Jesus is initiating this gift, this promise of the Father, and Jesus gives a hint of what that promise is when he says, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Well, what does that mean? What do you mean by that? Now, we have an understanding of it because we're, we've been able to read a little bit further, right? But the disciples are like, we're not exactly sure what's happening here. The disciples don't know what the promise is, but whatever it is, they're to wait for it in Jerusalem. All they know is that something is something that will clothe them with power. Now, we know it's not just something. We know that it's someone, someone whom Jesus has said would be another just like him. We'll get into that another day. But back in Acts chapter 1, verses 4 through 5, this is what we read again. And while saying, staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, Luke chapter 24, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit, not many days from now. So now Luke makes this connection for Theophilus that the power that will come upon them is the power of the Holy Spirit. John's ba- John baptized with water, but you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. It is a power that you have never had. A power that will give you courage, a power that will give you gifts for the mission, a power that will truly fuel your passion for the spread of the gospel. So we need to say this very, very carefully. The power of the Holy Spirit is sent by Jesus from the Father. 
Okay? Here's the triune God at work, again, to usher in the kingdom. So we've seen what Jesus accomplished, what Jesus promised. But now we're going to even get to the further into the heart of the issue here, what Jesus continues. Luke has taken us and Theophilus back to the gospel. He's helped Theophilus identify what is about to happen next in the story. But if we don't read our passage carefully, we're going to miss this. Look at verse 1 again. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. Let me read it again with a little emphasis. In the first book, O Theophilus, I began to deal with all Jesus began to do and teach. What Luke is saying here is that what Luke's gospel is about is what Jesus began to do and teach. Now in the book of Acts, we're encountering what Jesus continues to do and teach. See that? See, there can be a thinking that, oh, we come to the Gospels, Jesus is the focus of the Gospels. But when we come to the book of Acts, oh, the focus is the Holy Spirit. The focus is the church. That's where emphasis should be. And what Luke is saying is, no, 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 no. Your understanding of the Holy Spirit, your understanding of the church, your understanding of the ministry of the Gospel going forward must find its root in Christ. Because he began it. And Jesus continues the ministry of the gospel from his throne in heaven. By the power of the Holy Spirit and with his word. So this thinking that the ministry of Jesus is over, the gospels are over, and now it's this ministry of the Holy Spirit. You know, in some churches, some some contexts, they believe in what's called modalism. In the Old Old Testament, there was God the Father. In the Gospels, there's Jesus. And then when we move into the book of Acts, well, it's all the Holy Spirit. As if Jesus has left the scene, he's no longer around. It's just God kind of popping up in three different forms. No, no, no. That's why I'm I'm at pains here to show you that this this book of Acts is being given to us and and revealed to us by Luke, showing us this, this activity of the triune God all working together and emphasizing here the fact that it is Jesus who is directing these events. So Luke is saying that the book of Acts is the continuing ministry of Jesus. Certainly this book highlights the ministry of the Holy Spirit. It documents the growth of the church across the Mediterranean. It takes you on a journey with Peter and Paul. But everything that is being done is still the continuing ministry of Jesus. It isn't as if Jesus is gone. So we have to focus on the ministry of the Holy Spirit. But Jesus is seated on his throne in heaven and he's continuing his ministry by his word through the power of the Holy Spirit. In other words, Jesus is very much present in the book of Acts. He's at the heart of the unfolding events of the book of Acts. And there's a number of places I could take you to give you an example of that. But let me just take you to one, and that's Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9. In Acts chapter 9, we find the transformation of, of the Apostle Paul. 
Saul, as he was known, was the persecutor of the church, and he's on this road to Damascus. And I want you to notice Acts chapter 9, verses 3 through 6. You might want to turn there in your own Bibles. It says, now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am who? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Well, I, I thought I thought Jesus was just in, in the Gospels. I thought he's gone. I thought this is all about the Holy Spirit. No, this is Jesus now speaking to Paul, confronting Paul, converting Paul. He says, but rise and enter the city and you will be told what you are to do. Continue reading down at verse 15. Here, a few verses later, after the Lord, who is Jesus, revealed himself to Ananias, whom he was arranging to meet with Paul, Jesus says to Ananias, but the Lord said to him, go for his chosen instrument. He is a chosen instrument of mine. So this is Jesus speaking to carry out my name before the Gentiles and the kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. This is Jesus saying, this is what I'm calling him to. This is what I'm doing through him. This is the work that I have called him to do. So clearly this passage is showing that Jesus is continuing to teach and to do. He's continuing in word and in deed through his chosen instrument. So based on this continuation, we can rightly identify the book of Acts as the continuing acts of Jesus Christ that are fleshed out in the power of the Holy Spirit through chosen vessels like the apostles to establish the churches in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and uttermost parts of the earth. You with me there? This is really important, friends. This is the ministry of Jesus at work. Now, if you you say, well, I'm not sure exactly, Pastor, let me think that through. Let me just show you what the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 15. Romans chapter 15. Paul's now talking about his ministry. Romans 15, verse 18 and 19 says this. For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience. Interesting. If the the book of Acts was all about the ministry of the Holy Spirit, he would be saying that the Holy Spirit accomplished through me. But he's saying this is what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the, uh, the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Elycrium, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. So he's saying Christ worked through me by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Paul's ministry was to carry the ministry of the gospel of Christ in word and in power. So it isn't in Acts that Jesus has spoken in the past. No, in Acts, Jesus is still speaking and acting. He's alive and he's building his church. And friends, it's it's important then to realize then that he is not done. He's still speaking and acting through his church. He, He is alive in us. He's still building his church. 
Now, I understand introductions can take you all over the place, and, and this might be hard to hear, but friends, it's, it's important for us to realize. I want to just finish our time this morning with just three concluding thoughts that hopefully will, will flesh out of this for us as a church. Hear this first of all. Number one, Christ continues his work through us. Since Jesus continues his work in the book of Acts, we can be confident that Jesus continues to do his work through us. It is his word we proclaim. They are his deeds of mercy and grace that we live out. So when we come to church and we hear the word proclaimed, it is really Jesus speaking. Now here, I'm not Jesus. But the word of God that is proclaimed is the ministry of Jesus going forward. It is Jesus who is at work through the preached word. When we bring food to the home of a family that is sick with COVID, it's really Jesus meeting their need. It's Jesus meeting their need through his church. Jesus continues his work through us. And so, like I said, we're not Jesus, but our words and actions flow out of the gospel. We are his mouth, we're his hands, we're his feet. And friends, it's important for us to realize that that we're not kind of like doing something post-Jesus. We're doing something actively present to Jesus. In other words, although the events of the book of Acts are in the past, Jesus is alive and he is working his will now in our context here in the Bay Area. He hasn't abandoned us. Christ continues his work through us, which means he continues his work through you. Secondly, Christ continues his work through us in the power of the Holy Spirit. You and I, if you're a child of God, are given at least one gift. You are empowered to do ministry. You are empowered to serve. You are empowered to teach. You are empowered to use your gifts for the glory of God. There's a Holy Spirit dynamic at work in you for the purpose of being the church and accomplishing God's work in building his kingdom. And it continues through us in the power of the Holy Spirit. Third, Christ is not done with his ministry on earth. The Great Commission remains. That wasn't just for the apostles. It continues for us. We're still to go. We're still to teach. We're still to baptize. We're still to to build up the body of Christ. So the ministry of the local church is still just as viable and important as it was in the early church. Because it's Christ who is at work through us by the Holy Spirit to minister the truth of the gospel that is revealed in his word. And opposition will always be present, sometimes in subtle ways, often in antagonistic ways, even in violent ways, just like it was in the book of Acts. So even with the rise of, I would say, newer religions like Islam, 
or the intolerant ideologies of man like communism or even things that are kind of taking shape in our, in our culture that, that may not be clearly identified with those things but are very much like them. The church doesn't go, ah! The church pauses and says, wait a second. We're still called to the same purpose that Christ has laid out for the church in the book of Acts to be the church that he's called us to be. And that means to faithfully proclaim the word of God, spread the gospel, to build up his flock. That's why here at Gateway we seek to live out our mission. What is that mission? We exist to glorify God by building a community of believers who are actively committed. That word actively is really important. It's not passively happening. We're actively trying to do this. We're actively committed to knowing, to applying, and to proclaiming the word of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. God has called us to be his church. Our context is different. But our role and function as the church is the same. We may not have the signs and wonders, because in my opinion, those passed off with the apostles. But we still have the power of the Holy Spirit at work in and through us as the word of God is proclaimed, as we are his hands and feet and and his, his mouth in different places. The word goes forward. The gospel goes forward. Christ is present and he accomplishes his purposes. But there'll be opposition and there'll be trouble. There'll be difficulty. But it is Christ who is driving it all. Don't lose that. Don't forget that. We are doing the ministry of Christ by being faithful as his church. Lord, help us today. Help us to to wrap our hands around some of this foundational reality that so often is not thought through as we jump into a book like Acts. And although we have we've looked at some things that are somewhat theoretical, help us then begin to see the importance of, of careful understanding and theology to be placed in the right place so that as we go about doing the things that you've called us to do, that we're leaning on you in the right way. That we're trusting, Lord, you from your word to accomplish your your purposes, Lord, in the way, Lord, that you are desiring them to be accomplished. And Lord, help us as we jump in further after this introduction, after we've bridged the gap, so to speak, to, to say, Lord, you have something for us specifically, practically, that is active, that is an illustration, that is pointing us to what ministry looks like and the kind of difficulties and trials and and struggles we're going to have simply being the church that is being faithful to proclaim your truth. But Lord, may we be reminded that it all goes back to you. It all goes back to Christ, who's driving these events. And Lord, what he began to do and teach in his earthly ministry. 
Lord, he is still doing, even here at Gateway, even in our lives. And that you would be glorified as we seek to understand what that looks like, as we seek to learn, Lord, from those who have gone before us, as we seek to learn from, Lord, the things that you revealed to us in the book of Acts. Lord, help us to be humble, to be teachable, and Lord, to be passionate about wanting to do your will. We ask this now in your precious holy name. Amen.